we used to provide them with information. For instance, uh, in, in, in football, uh, the African Football Confederation called CAF, Confederation of African Football, they, they took us as their representative. You know, they had little offices to prepare the documentation on how to get to the South Africa. For instance, um, in, uh, in 1976, I prepared all the documentation when South Africa was expelled, that South African football was expelled from FIFA. Uh, in fact, that happened at the Congress uh, in Montreal in 1976 during the Olympic Games. And at the same place, uh, South Africa was uh, suspended from international athletics, expelled from swimming uh, and all other activities. That was the voice of Sam Ramsamy describing how the global campaign against the participation of South African white Soli teams in international sport was built. Ram Sami, as the chairman of the South African Non-Racial Olympic Committee, or SANROC, between the years 1976 and 1990, was at the coordinating centre of that campaign. You will hear a lot more from him later on in this episode. Well, for sport, when I was in South Africa, we couldn't take part in any national sport and so on. And we had, where I grew up, uh, a mine. And near the mine, there were mine dumps. You know, there's a little soil they take out of the ground to reach the mine. And that is where we used to play cricket from time to time. And I remember that. I was, of course, uh, discriminatory. I was a schoolboy at the time. And uh, <clears throat> we played uh, sport there in that way and otherwise supported the non-racial uh, efforts of others. And that was the voice of Abdul Samad Minty, who represented Sandrock at the meeting of the International Olympic Committee at Baden-Baden in 1963 to persuade its delegates to exclude South Africa from the Tokyo Olympics in 1964. You're listening to the Nagrik Podcast. I'm Aju John, and on this podcast, we learn together to get better at participating in public life. On previous episodes of the Nagrik podcast, we learned about the Mahat Satyagraha led by B.R. Ambedkar, R.B. More and their associates, the campaign for ILO Convention 177, the struggle to save Niamgiri Hills from extractive mining, the Chipko movement, and how some remarkable lawyers are providing legal services to the survivors of communal violence in India. This podcast is available on all major podcasting platforms. All you have to do is to go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and search for Nagrik Podcasts. When you find our feed, you will find these older episodes as well. If you then subscribe to the feed, 
you will get to know when we release a new episode. From 1948 until the early 1990s, South Africa pursued a system of institutionalized racial segregation known as apartheid. It ensured that South Africa was dominated politically, socially and economically by the nation's minority white population. According to this system of social stratification, the Afrikaner speaking white citizens had the highest status, followed by Asians and coloreds, which is the term for people of mixed descent, and then black Africans. While parts of it had already crept into social practice, it became a formal policy of the South African government after the Afrikaner nationalist National Party came to power during the 1948 general elections. Apartheid was enforced through laws such as the Population Registration Act, which formalized racial classification and introduced an identity card for all persons over the age of 18 specifying their racial group, the Group Areas Act, which determined where one lived according to their race, the Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act, which prohibited marriage between persons of different races, and the Reservation of Separate Amenities Act, which paved the way for creating among other things separate beaches, buses, hospitals, schools and universities. Sport was similarly segregated. Douglas Booth is the dean of the School of Education, Sport and Exercise Sciences at the University of Otago in New Zealand. His work primarily focuses on the political and cultural aspects of sport, and in the mid-1980s, while at the University of Natal in Durban, South Africa, Booth started his work on the sports boycott of South Africa. He'll tell us more about apartheid in sport. Uh, if you look at the history of uh, modern competitive organised sport, most people agree that it begins in the around uh, about the third quarter of the nineteenth uh, century, and that is true of uh, South Africa as well. And so the early history is of uh, both um, integrated. Uh, and segregated sport in the uh, 19th century uh, South Africa. So we do have examples of um, uh, white uh, cricket teams playing uh, black cricket teams, for example. We do have examples of uh, integrated um, athletics competitions. Um, I, and I think there are even uh, been some recent uh, coverings of examples of uh, um, uh, black and white people playing uh, rugby together. So. Uh, yeah, the, the 19th century is really a period. The late 19th century is really a period of uh, uh, formation, um, organisation of the sport, um, and this is also the same in the uh, broader political spectrum of South Africa. So South Africa was a uh, you know, segregated society from uh, very very early on, but there are also uh, gaps. There are also uh, blind spots. There are also paradoxes. There are also Ironies and contradictions. So there are all those things taking place in the 19th uh, century. The intensification of segregation begins in the very late 19th century and the uh, early 20th century. And at that time, we begin to see uh, a sharper uh, period of uh, segregation, including in uh, sport. So it's across the whole spectrum, not just uh, not just sport. And then it's. Uh, And, and and if you look at the history books of the early 20th century, um, right up into the 1930s, um, we're talking now about a period in which the segregation of uh, people is largely seen as uh, a custom. So it's not 
so much that it's entrenched in uh, legislation or more importantly than legislation and local uh, council bylaws. So when we talk about Part A legislation, you know, you've got maybe half a dozen really key pillars of uh, segregation, but it's not just the, those big legislative uh, pieces such as the Population Act or the Land uh, Registration Act. It's the tens and tens of thousands of municipal bylaws which were reinforcing uh, our segregation. And in the first half of the uh, uh, first half of the 20th century, we're now talking about this view that segregation was a uh, was a uh, custom. This is from the perspective of the um, white historians or the white history, the white narrative, the Africana narrative of, uh, of South African uh, history. And then, of course, we have the uh, election, and this is a whites-only election, the election of the uh, National Party in uh, South Africa, 1948. And then over the following decade, you have the introduction of grand apartheid legislation where the segregation is reinforced and it becomes uh, prescribed and there is segregation in every quarter of our life. So everything from cradle to grave, uh, everything is uh, segregated along uh, racial lines. It's, it's segregation on the basis of time, it's segregation on the basis of space, and of course it's all based around uh, racial uh, classification, which of course is ambiguous and uh, contradictory in its own uh, right, uh, but the apartheid state, the National Party government went to great lengths to uh, formalise that and um, put it into legislation, put it into policy and reinforce it with the um, armed might of the, uh, the state. So it's not only the police, but it's also the army, which is uh, uh, eventually reinforcing this uh, segregation. But what is interesting here, especially amongst the, the Coloreds and the Indians, in sport specifically, they, they've been fighting the system about uh, uh, racial discrimination from a very, very long, long time. And of course, it came to the fore uh, in about the early 1940s uh, when uh, the, the, the South African weightlifters were largely of black origin. They were either colored Indian or African. And uh, then they realized that there was a ceiling, that, that, that there was a ceiling that they could not represent the country, they could not go out and participate in, in international sport. And then the officials took it up, initially with the International Olympic Committee uh, to do something about this. And for instance, we had some very, very good weightlifters in South Africa. Uh, one was uh, Ronnie Eland, Ronnie Eland uh, was of uh, colored origin, and uh, he was the top weightlifter in his division here. I think it was the bantamweight division. He couldn't make it into the South African team, although he's, he, he outweighed uh, uh, everybody else as far as weight, uh, the weighting system was concerned. And then, of course, during that particular time, South Africa was still part of the, the colonial empire, you might say. And then he represented Britain at the 1948 Olympic Games uh, in London, and that was a, that was you know a, a, an eye opener that uh, there are people here uh, of black uh, origin who can make uh, very very good 
representatives of South Africa, but they were deprived of this. Then we had another one. In fact, um, eventually uh, Ronnie Land settled in um, Canada and of course, you know, sadly passed away now and he passed away in, uh, 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 in uh, Canada, in Toronto largely, uh, he lived there. And then we had another weightlifter called Precious McKenzie. He's now living in the New Zealand. Uh, he also left the country in 1966. Uh, he represented England at the Commonwealth Games in Jamaica and won a gold medal there. And of course, uh, representing England. And then in 1972, uh, he uh, re represented uh, uh, Great Britain at the Olympic Games in Munich. So this, this was the issue there that, that brought everything up. And our administrators were very, very good. Nevertheless, they ensured that uh, black uh, sports people who had uh, uh, talent, but unfortunately because of uh, financial and other resources, they, they couldn't make it, couldn't leave the country. And a few people tried it on their own. And we had one um, uh, uh, black cricketer of colored origin called Basil D'Olivera. He went to England and uh, there he made the uh, English uh, team. And that created a use for Raw in 1968. Sam Ramsamy was referring to what came to be known as the D'Olivera affair a controversy over whether or not the England cricket selectors would include Basil D'Oliveira, a mixed-race South African player who had represented England in Test cricket since 1966, in the England team for their tour of South Africa, scheduled for 1968-69. D'Oliveira, who had been classified as non-white in South Africa, had left the country because apartheid barred him from playing first-class cricket or representing the national team. After moving to England in 1960, he eventually played for Worcestershire County in 1964 and by the 1966 season had been selected to play for England. He had been immediately successful. Leading up to the scheduled tour of South Africa, there was intense media scrutiny on D'Oliveira and on the selectors. The South African government had even informed the English selectors that D'Oliveira's selection would lead to the cancellation of the tour. After he was not included in the original touring party on August 27th, 1968, there was a backlash from the public, the media and from politicians. After all, D'Oliveira had performed well in his last match for England, scoring 158 runs against the visiting Australians. Then, after one of the original members of the squad pulled out, D'Oliveira was called up to join. BJ Foster, the South African Prime Minister, publicly condemned the selection as a purely political decision. After South African cricket administrators told their English counterparts that their side was not acceptable, the tour was cancelled. All of this happened just eight years after what came to be known as the Sharpeville Massacre, which had turned much of international opinion against South Africa and its apartheid policies. Having grown up in apartheid South Africa, Sam Ramsamy was 30 years old when England cancelled its test match tour of South Africa. It was, it, it was fascinating that in the early days, uh, our, our sporting heroes, although there were many South African, white South Africans who were also very, very good, but our sporting heroes came from black people overseas and white people overseas. For instance, our sporting heroes were largely uh, uh, footballers, English footballers, uh, or for instance, uh, the top footballers uh, in the world, like for instance, uh, we had Ferenc Puskas. 
uh, Hungarian uh, in the 1960s. He was our hero. And in very many respects, we, our heroes were largely um, black uh, 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 people of black origin outside the country, like Pele, uh, the football legend. And we had football legends uh, uh, not far from South Africa in Mozambique. And in 1966, uh, they represented Portugal uh, uh, in, uh, uh, in, in uh, the, the World Cup uh, in England. And in fact, the, the captain of the Portuguese team was a black Mozambican and the best player in the whole of the 1966 series in uh, 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 England was Eusebio, who played uh, for a Portuguese club. And you know he was called uh, the Black Prince to a large extent. So we, these were the heroes that we had. We had the cricketers, for instance, from Australia. They were our heroes. For instance, um, I was um, about 10 years old, for instance, uh, 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 living in Durban and not far from the school where uh, I was um, uh, a pupil um, uh, was uh, the very famous uh, cricket ground uh, in Durban called the Kingsmead Cricket Ground. And there uh, we discovered that uh, for the pre-match test between South Africa and Australia, the uh, um, Australian uh, cricket team was practicing the nets and then all our, all our schoolboys went there and these Australian cricketers are all white. And they said, look, you're standing there. Why don't you help us bowl? So I remember bowling, bowling to people like at that time, one of the top cricketers uh, in the world was a gentleman called uh, Keith Miller. And I was bowling to him as just, just about 11 years old. I was 10, 11 years old. And these were our fascination. And then what was interesting at that stage, whenever, there were tours coming into South Africa. Black South Africans never, south, never supported the South African team. We always supported the overseas team and uh, because we felt that they are our heroes and we wanted them to beat the white South African because we were not allowed to take part uh, as South African. These, these were... So I spent, when apartheid ended, I was uh, by this, I mean, when, when we first had democratic elections in South Africa in 1994, I was um, turning 25 years old. That was Sean Jacobs, an associate professor of international affairs at the New School in New York. He's the founder and editor of Africa is a Country, and in 2019, published his book, Media in Post-Apartheid South Africa, Post-Colonial Politics in the Age of Globalization. Jacobs, too, grew up in apartheid South Africa, where sport is marked not only by segregation, but also by the international boycott. I have a good memory of apartheid sport, you know, in terms of my own participation, in terms of watching it, etc. So in terms of playing sports um, during apartheid, so I grew up in South Africa. You, the, you have to understand that segregation was quite deep and, and uh, along what they would call racial lines. These were as because of um, uh, legislation that they passed in the 1950s to divide the races and so they organized sport also in that way the interesting thing so i grew up in what you call in south africa like a colored township so you know they have whites what they deemed whites indians bringing people of asian descent um colors which they deemed people of mixed descent which by the way also included indians because of slavery because uh, some of the slaves that arrived in the 17th century also came from india um, and, and what they would call Africans. Uh, these were people who were, you know, 
governed by what you would call indirect rule. They had like a chief, et cetera, and so on. So a lot of colored people lived in the cities. So colored sport um, was organized mostly through what was called the South African Council on Sports. So by the time I'm kind of like, you know, a, a little kid in the 1970s, in 1973, the, this association was formed, the South African Council on Sports. They were quite left-wing. They were anti-racist. They rejected, you know, white sport. So the sports iPad spading was mostly organized by them through the schools. So playing, I played rugby in, in school, particularly in high school. Um, uh, I also, you know, you'd play you'd athletics, like running, track and field. These were mostly organized through the schools. There were uh, uh, club sports, like club cricket, club soccer, but that means you had to pay to play those sports. If you play for the school, you don't pay. And so because I, you know, I grew up very poor in South Africa, like very working class, my father's like a gardener, my mother's a domestic worker. So money to go play for a club, that's more money. That's like, a, that's like an expense. So I had friends who played for clubs and I would watch them play. And out of that football, actually that club football, a lot of uh, players that would emerge in the, the early 1990s when South Africa was then allowed back into, into international sport, if you want, particularly in soccer or football, um, a number of players from, from those leagues, I know personally they went to play for South Africa. This guy called Mark Williams, who was a striker for the South African national football team that won the African Nations Cup in 1996. He played in those leagues when I was like a, a kid and I would go watch him play and even if those leagues were segregated, you could see that this guy was good. You know what I'm saying? So, so my experience of apartheid sport was in terms of playing it, mostly with school, uh, in terms of watching it, it was that kind of what people call non-racial sports, i.e. anti-apartheid sport. Uh, if I'm reading it, it's going to be mostly white sport. If I'm reading about sport in the newspaper, there's some, some newspaper editions would print the result of that black or non-racial sport, but most of the stuff you read about cricket or you read about rugby or not some, if you read about soccer, then it's soccer from the UK, from England. So I'm also a Liverpool supporter, but if it's local South African sport, it's white South African sport. And so you would hear from an uncle or somebody about say Basil de Oliveira and, you know, anti-apartheid sport like that, but you would read about Graham Pollock. You read about Barry, um, I forget his name. Who? Richards. Yeah, Barry Richards or somebody like that. If you read about a black sportsman like Omar Henry, I don't know if you remember him. He was a spin bowler for the cricket team in South Africa. You'd read about them in that white media. You would read a lot about rugby because that's what the newspapers did. If you're watching television, so this is where it got interesting. On TV, you'd see white cricket and white rugby. But soccer was in South Africa historically, and there are reasons for this, which is often deliberate, the white, the colonial authorities decided that soccer and boxing is for black people, rugby and cricket is for whites, and I can get into that. But if you were watching television, and television came to South Africa in the mid, the mid 1970s, 1976, initially there was just white sport on TV, but by the early 1980s, they created two other channels for black viewers in two black languages, Zulu, Kosa, which are Nguni languages, and two other languages, Sutu and Chwana on another channel. On those channels, you could actually watch soccer, black soccer. So, you know, the, the, the kind of legends of South African football, like Jomo Sono, who went to play for 
the, 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 the Neo Cosmos or Kaiser Motaum, who started his own football club, Kaiser Chiefs, um, or Dr. Comado, who ended up playing, I think he played for like one season in Argentina after the end of apartheid, you'd see these people on TV. So yes, there was some black sports on TV, but it was mostly soccer. If there were, if you saw track and field, you know, athletics, like running, like 100 meters, 200 meters, if there were black athletes, they were participating in the sports organized by the minds, you know, because those sports would be, would be integrated into, in, by the 1980s into white sports. So the, to make a long story short, when I sort of start I, figuring out about sports by the in the early 1970s, I would say sports is heavily segregated. There's no television. You're probably reading it about it in the newspaper. You, you're hearing about it on the radio. Uh, if it's local sports, if you're hearing about it, it's going to be white sports. If you go into it, it's going to be segregated sports for black people. So South Africa is, is a highly industrialized country, right? It's, it's actually a very wealthy country. So it has the means for like to create, if you want like a media world for you, there's enough newspapers, there's, there's television, um, you know, by the, by the eighties, you can watch a lot of VHS tapes, um, you know, people share those things. Uh, there's a lot of reading going on. Like I was just saying, like, I loved reading about sports as a kid. Um, I go to the library, you would take out. So in a country that's, that's, that's deliberately undermining black people, that doesn't really want you to form, I suppose, like a political consciousness around that. It is somehow naive about the fact that you can read about it. So I, I remember reading a book, I think it was called, um, there ain't no black in the union jack which is about black footballers in england in the 1980s like Cyril regis luther blissett you know so laurie cunningham so you can read about that you can you can actually read about it and then secondly like i said from roughly the early 1980s you start seeing live and i think this might be true about for the rest of the world there's these live football matches that you can watch from the english premier league like i think there was like one match per week the match of the day Initially, it's like taped. Then you can start seeing the FA Cup live. So you, if 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 you, the thing about sports, right, is if you could see it, if you could see it live, and you can, you can sort of identify with it. You can live through all the emotions of it, even if there are people in the stadium or physically present and they connect differently. You sort of far away, even if you're cut off from the from that world. I think what TV does really well is to make you feel that you are somehow in that moment and you are connected and you can sort of identify with those players. And I think the other, the other part of the story is you're saying South African players are not allowed to play. So then what else can you do? You start identifying with replacements. Brazil was even like that for us. If, 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 if you see a bunch of players on the screen in Brazil, just in terms of like physically, when you look at them, they look like the diversity of blackness in South Africa, like, you know, light skin, dark skin, like you could, you, could, you could see yourself, you see the team and they're very good at it, which is sort of like what black South Africans are thinking about themselves, even if they, but they're not allowed to play. So you can live vicariously through Brazil. You can begin to live vicariously to root hold it. And then with Maradona, there's some level I think in which you just identify with him as a working class person, a working class hero. You, you know, you're reading, he's from the slum of Buenos Aires. He's seen as sort of, uh, he looks more Indio, like he looks more native, if you want. 
Uh, Argentina is a country that identifies a lot like South Africa. It has a sort of ideal of whiteness. And here's this figure, this short, stout person, like doing amazing things. So there's that, there's that identification that I think you also have. But I think also more than that, there are a bunch of South Africans at that point who are excelling outside South Africa in sport, particularly in football, I would say. So you had um, the Stain brothers. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Brian Stain, Mark Stain. They played for Luton Town uh, at that time in the first division. Uh, they also, they, I think they ended up winning what was called like the Milk Cup, which is not like the FA Cup, but like now I think they call it the, the, the League Cup, I think is what they call it in the UK now. So you could see them live on TV. So if it's apparently true that only white people are good at sports, but you're watching TV and you're seeing these South African athletes, despite it producing, I think you can sort of, um, you know, you, you kind of identify, you, you sort of identify with them. There are local heroes at the time, and I, and I, I shouldn't, because, you know, if a South African listens to this, they're like, why didn't you mention that person or this person? But like, you know, there's a, in, in Cape Town, for example, there was a really brilliant striker called Duncan Crowey. He actually ended up getting a trial at Chelsea in, in the UK. This is like in the 1980s. You're gonna, this South African guy from, you know, one of the townships in Cape Town, he goes over there. He, he became like a, he was a, a, a sort of a cult hero at a local club called Santos. Um, so, you know, you see him in the paper, but you rarely see him play. Like, you know, you, it's a still, you're looking at a still image and not at a moving image. And I think the fact that you're seeing these players from outside on your screen, I think that's how, that's how you develop the myths around them. And I, as I said, on top of it, you're reading about that. So uh, at the same time from the late 19th century, right through uh, the 20th century, you have not only a, uh, Racial, segre racially segregated groups, but you also have a uh, political group of uh, people who say, no, we are not uh, subscribing to this racial uh, discrimination. We, this racial segregation, we see ourselves as not as um, black South Africans, white South Africans, colored South Africans, but as, uh, as South Africans, we reject the racial uh, policy. We reject the racial formulas. We are non-racial South Africans. And so the non-racial movement, the non-racial movement largely built around the African National Congress um, is uh, promoting this idea of, hey, we should have uh, integrated uh, sport. We should have non-racial sport. We should have sport based on uh, merit. And from the um, early 1950s, um, this begins to become increasingly um, articulated and a few, uh, a few people, uh, most notably uh, Dennis Brutus, um, it becomes a, um, a very uh, prominent spokesperson for the non-racial uh, sports movement, which it must be emphasized is uh, advocating not uh, for a boycott of South African sport, but it's advocating for um, what might be simply called merit selection. So we select everyone on the basis of their own uh, merit irrespective of race. We are living in a non-racial society. We don't care if a person's black, white or coloured. Um, we are South Africans first and foremost, and we simply uh, desire to play our sport because that's a, a way we, which we can express ourselves. It's a way in which we find identity. It's a way in which we get 
joy from movement. Uh, we like the camaraderie. We like the um, just the uh, the embodiment of uh, sport for want of a better um, expression. And so the uh, yeah the non-racial sports movement gradually uh, becomes more mobilised, more organised. Appeals to the government to make uh, concessions. Appeals to the government to relax its uh, rigid apartheid policy. There no, was no relaxation, and so the non-racial sports movement pushed further and further um, into the political realm and into uh, towards the uh, the boycott. And I'm not sure if. Uh, uh, you or your uh, listeners are aware, but the first country to actually impose a boycott on um, on South Africa was uh, India, and um, it was uh, through uh, table tennis, which was the uh, the first sport to formally uh, launch a a, uh, a boycott of uh, South African sport. That was Douglas Booth at the University of Otago, and you're listening to the Nagrik Podcast. My name is Aju John. If you like this podcast, please go ahead and give us a review. You can also write to me at aju at nagriklearning.com. That is A-J-U at N-A-G-R-I-K learning.com. I'd like to learn from you about how I can get better and about any suggestions for future episodes of this podcast. Another feature of the South African apartheid was the system of internal passports that were used to segregate the population manage urbanization and allocate migrant labor. From the 1960s, the pass laws as they came to be known were the primary instrument used by the state to detain and harass its political opponents. Around the time that Basil Oliveira was planning to leave the country of his birth to go play cricket in England, the African National Congress, an anti-apartheid political group, prepared to initiate a campaign of protest against the pass laws. Its rivals, the Black Nationalist Pan-Africanist Congress, however, launched its own campaign 10 days earlier than the ANC had planned. On 21st March 1960, a group of between 5,000 and 10,000 people converged on the local police station in the township of Sharpville in the province of Transvaal, offering themselves up for arrest for not carrying their passbooks. The South African police opened fire on the crowd, killing 69 people and injuring 180 others. Many were shot in the back as they turned to flee. The following week saw demonstrations, protest marches, strikes and riots around the country. On 30th March 1960, the government declared a state of emergency, detaining more than 18,000 people, including prominent anti-apartheid activists such as Nelson Mandela. On April 8th, both the African National Congress and the Pan-Africanist Congress were declared unlawful organizations and banned. Many leaders went into exile. Of the ones that remained, 
several advocated more militant methods in the fight against apartheid including guerrilla warfare and sabotage all of this would have an impact on the young sam ramsamy and his love for sport that uh, i uh, i i couldn't make it uh, into teams i didn't bother and then i took up coaching and there i realized that i had some very top i coached track and field i coached football i coached athletics and some of the the kids i was coaching were very very good highly talented but we couldn't make it because the ceiling was so low and we said the system there was apartheid so these were the the uh, our, our early experiences and then i as i realized if, uh, um uh, in the 1960s there were, there was quite a lot of rebellion uh, for instance with me personally what had happened was that uh, in uh, 1970 uh south africa was commemorating uh, the founding of the republic because south africa had to uh, was forced to leave the commonwealth in 1960 because of its apartheid policies and the uh, the of course the commonwealth then realized that we they can't have someone a country with 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 racial connotations in its constitution and prohibiting the overwhelming majority of its population um the african national congress um i'm sure your uh, listeners will be aware of that um is banned and then uh, a lot of its uh, leaders go into um exile and um then there was a lot of people also went um underground and stayed within south africa so you've essentially got two uh wings if you like of the of the liberation movement um so an internal and uh an external and of course a lot of the really uh fascinating um things yet to be discovered by historians are the other uh, links between those two groups and how they are uh, communicated and there are a few uh books starting to come out now looking looking at that and it makes uh for fascinating uh reading but there's a lot more to be um uncovered uh yet so you've got that in the broad political spectrum you've got the um movement in exile liberation movement in exile and the liberation movement uh, underground within uh, South Africa now exactly the same thing happens in uh, in sport you have a group of leaders including uh, Dennis Brutus and Sam Ramsamy who go into uh, exile and they set up the uh, South African non racial olympic committee and then Uh, and that was in the uh, early 1960s early to mid 1960s and then uh 10 years later in 1973 uh those um sports activists for want of a better term who who'd remained underground they formed the uh the South African uh, Council on Sport and became the um internal wing of the sports liberation movement and 1970 Uh, I returned for a short while I was training uh, uh, in England at that particular stage uh, as a, 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 a as a sports a physical education teacher uh, the um, South African government said well we're going to commemorate uh, uh, the 10th anniversary of the founding of the Republic of South Africa and very many students came to me and said look we we have to do something because our our um, principals of schools were harassed they they were forced because of government regulations at that stage for us to all take part in events but what we will do we'll make a sham of those events 
in the athletic events, what had happened, of course, all the officials largely were uh, white uh, government officials. And for instance, in the 100 meters, they said, well, if that stage, the, the um, rules were one can break the twice, uh, the uh, starting uh, block twice, you can break it twice, you break it the third time, you're out. So the top athletes broke uh, um, 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 uh, or violated it three times and, and they got uh, withdrawn, they were suspended. And what was interesting in the 1500 meter races, all the kids sprinted in the first uh, uh, 100 meters and collapsed. And when it came to the relays, they passed the relay batons. Of course, they were, uh, you know, relay batons are team batons. You're supposed to pass it to your team. And the relay batons were passed to opposing team. So they, they made a real travesty of this event. And then, of course, uh, at that time, I was a lecturer at a college of education uh, in uh, Durban. Uh, of course, it was largely for Indians because all the um, uh, laws segregated uh, and, and uh, indicated that Indians had to go to Indian institutions, colored at colored institutions, uh, and Africans at African institutions. Of course, whites had all the uh, the top institutions. And what was interesting at that stage, more, again, because the um, apartheid government, especially in institutes of higher education where I was involved, uh, they didn't trust the the, the black lecturers. In my case, of course, I had to go to the Indian Institute. Uh, I was teaching at the Indian Institute. And three quarters, to a large extent, three quarters of the lecturers were of white origin, white origin people who supported the government. And there was a very unique system. All of us were paid equal salaries, but the white lecturers got most, more salaries. And we found out, you know, we managed to befriend some of our white lecturers. They told, we, we, they told us, we get what is called an inconvenience allowance. Inconvenience allowance because we, we are teaching uh, black, black, we are uh, at black institutes, we're teaching uh, uh, students who are black. And they used to get the special inconvenience allowance. So this was ridiculous at that stage. And then of course, uh, I um, was a seconded lecturer and I applied for a lectureship permanent lectureship at the Institute, and I was uh, declined. I had the best qualification and I was declined. My head of department, like all heads of department then, uh, were uh, white. And my head of department was more upset than I was because he said, normally, whomever I recommend, uh, the, the, the department that the Institute of Higher Education accepts it. And he was more upset than I was because his nominee uh, was rejected. And then of course, he went to fi find out what happened. And then he returned and he says, look, he called me into his office and said, Sam, I've got some news for you and it's very sensitive. And this is going to remain with, with you and me. And I'm now suffering from colon cancer. I don't have very many years to live, but you must only reveal what I'm telling you after I've passed away and I promised him. He said, firstly, do you have a passport? And I said, yes, because I had previously studied in England. He said, well, don't just run away. Quietly resign from your post as if you nothing happened and, said, and say that you were going to um, 
uh, further your studies uh, in England and then leave uh, because the apartheid police forces are investigating you. They don't have much, but I think they'll take up to about six months to find out all the details that they believe that you were one of the instigators of the, uh, the travesty that happened at sports events uh, in the commemoration of the uh, 10th anniversary of the founding of the Republic. And I resigned quietly. And in 1972, I quietly uh, uh, left the country. And, uh, and of course, uh, I, I joined a movement there called the South African Non-Racial Olympic Committee called SANROC, uh, the acronym. And that uh, group was campaigning uh, to isolate South Africa from international sport until the situation in South Africa changes and all black people uh, allow the equal opportunities. Well, I was involved in the sports arena and in, in the sport. And of course, later on in 1976, I, I, I became its executive chairman. I was a teacher private, uh, previous to that in England. And uh, my uh, committee said, Sam, we need you on a full-time basis. So I left teaching and became the full-time executive chairman of Sandrock in 76. You're listening to Sam Ramsamy on the Nagrik podcast. I'm Aju John, and on this podcast, we learn together to become better at participating in public life. Nagrik podcasts are available on nearly all podcasting platforms, including Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. They're a part of Nagrik Open Civic Learning, a project to reduce inequality in access to knowledge about law, public institutions, and civic and political participation. Right now on www.nagriklearning.com, you can learn for free about advancing the rights of workers and supply chains from videos and other materials prepared with support from Oxfam. In 1958, Dennis Brutus, a vocal critic of apartheid, formed the South African Sports Association and as secretary, successfully opposed a proposed cricket tour by the West Indies team to South Africa in 1959. In 1962, Brutus was a co-founder of the South African Non-Racial Olympic Committee, SANROC, and in 1961, he was banned for his activities as a part of SANROC. The South African Council on Sport, or SACOS, was established in 1973 as a non-racial sports federation, declaring that there could be no normal sport in an abnormal society. After the anti-apartheid movement recognized SACOS as its domestic sports wing, it pursued negotiations with the white sport officials to integrate and democratize South African sports and failed. Leaders of SACOS were persecuted. Uh, my particular interest in uh, the sports boycott, a lot has been written about the sports boycott, but I was really uh, fascinated and really interested in uh, the internal what I call the internal wing of the sports liberation movement. This was the, uh, the South African Council on Sport. And I met some of the, uh, the leaders of, um, the, of, of SACOS and a couple of things uh, really stood out uh, for me. First of all, uh, most, of them, uh, most of the leadership was uh, what uh, South Africans classified as, uh, as uh, coloured. So these are people of uh, mi uh, mixed descent. So this was the, the official racial uh, designation. So I met these people. But what really uh, struck me was um, these were really um, 
intelligent, sincere people. They were upper middle class. They were part of the intelligentsia. They were teachers. They were lawyers, a lot of doctors, a lot of medical doctors. And um, they were the, uh, the real leadership of uh, the South African Council of Sport. And that I found was really uh, fascinating. Now here's the South African government casting these people as uh, uh, you know, terrorists and bomb throwers and um, uh, riot, uh, insurrectionists and rioters, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they were uh, uh, far, far from uh, that. And in fact, here's one of the great um, ironies is that many of the people who were calling them that were probably uh, visiting them as their own uh, as their own uh, doctors, you know. So, um, you know, that's a, another one of the great paradoxes and contradictions of uh, of uh, South Africa. So, I found that uh, uh, really uh, fascinating. I think the first country at the UN to propose a resolution to isolate South Africa was India. I mean, that's that's for me that's fascinating. I think India gets independence in 1947, and right after that. At the UN, they make they make that call, and also in the early in, in the mid I think in the mid fifties the West Indies cricket team wanted still to tour South Africa. Um, CLR James has actually written about this because they thought we'll go to South Africa, play against black teams, and we'll show you know we'll show that black teams can play cricket. Actually, I think that's when Basil de Oliveira was coming up. So there's all this really there's a lot of great black cricketers in South Africa at the time, but they're not playing. You know, they, they don't get to play against England. They don't get to play. I don't think they'll have because playing against India at that point, but they don't get to play against Australia and so on. So in that beginning, there's a kind of, there's, there's the beginning of the consciousness of a, like there's a problem in South Africa. At that point, the ANC also goes into exile, 1960 after Sharpe, PAC goes into exile. It's interesting that at that point, they also begin to organize themselves around sports. So the two figures, that emerged is one man is called Dennis Brutus, who had been in jail on Robben Island with, with uh, Nelson Mandela. He had a very short time there, but then he fled the country, he went into exile, and he started this uh, organization called the South African Non-Racial Olympic Committee, Sunrock. And he recruited uh, this guy called Sam Ramsamy, who's a South African of Indian descent, and they kind of combined that organization. So they did a lot of this like lobbying internationally isolate South Africa when it came to sport. Yeah, I actually, I, I met Dennis Brutus uh, of, on my first visit to England. And this was by sheer coincidence. I was traveling on a, on a ship uh, uh, from South Africa to uh, England. And uh, his family, Dennis, Dennis had left the country previous to that. This was in, in, in the, the mid 60s. Uh, and um, uh, in 1966, when I was going to study in England. Uh, his family were in the same ship that I was. And then the, the, the ship stopped uh, 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 um, uh, in the Canary Islands. And Dennis Brutus joined, joined the ship there. And I met him there. And we became very, very good friends. And of course, Dennis and I, you know, we had uh, uh, operational differences later on in life. Uh, but to a large extent, um, that was my first meeting. And then, of course, when I went to England the second time, unfortunately, Dennis Brutus had left. He had gone to teach, I think, uh, at Chicago. I think it's in uh, North, North Western University, Chicago. No, it's not, not Eastern or Northwestern, one of the uh, North, uh, Northern universities. I couldn't remember. 
I think it was Northwestern University in Chicago. He was teaching there. Uh, but our relationship was very good. We fought together on very many fronts. But towards the end, uh, you know, uh, there was political division in South Africa, how um, we should approach the sports boycott. And there was a division and we had some operational differences. And to, to some extent, um, um, our relationship suffered because of that. Uh, the ANC was banned in 1963 after Mandela was again put into prison of, in, even before that. Uh, all the political parties, uh, largely the black political parties, the ANC, uh, the PAC, that, that was the Pan-African Congress, the ANC, the African National Congress, the South African Communist Party, and all the smaller parties were banned. And then, of course, splinter groups came up in South Africa. And previous to that, the, the, the anti-apartheid structures we said we shouldn't have divisions within the racial group because at that stage there was the South African Indian Congress, South, the Natal Indian Congress, the Colored People's Congress. They said we should abandon this. But after uh, um, the, uh, the banning of all these organizations, the, 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 the others needed a, a type of a support system to continue with their uh, political activity. And uh, th there was a move to reform what was called the Natal Indian Congress. Uh, it wasn't you know, very popular, but it was formed. And later on, there was another movement called the Democratic Movement of South Africa. And that was formed. Um, uh, but I was uh, when Sandrock was formed, I was still a, a schoolboy. Uh, my father was involved in that particular arena, uh, uh, but I was still a schoolboy. It was the South African Sports Association. Um, and, and then, of course, when they applied to the International Olympic Committee to recognition, for recognition to say that we are the, the real group that's fighting South Africa and we are the non-racial group, then the, 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 the definition and, and the terminology changed instead of South African Sports Association, uh, it was called the South African Non-Racial Olympic Committee. I was still young. In fact, Dennis Groot was, was one of the founder members uh, in South Africa. He was then based in a part of South Africa called Port Elizabeth. And recently Port Elizabeth has, got a, 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 has changed its name to a traditional, um, uh, what it was traditionally called before Port Elizabeth, called Gekaba. I just changed a few weeks ago, in fact. So um, they formed it. And then, of course, there was harassment, continuous harassment in the early 60s. And, and, and of course, the, uh, and Sandrock had to go dormant. And then Dennis Brutus, when he left South Africa, of course, you know, he tried to, to represent South Africa, non-racial sporting organization. He was banned. Uh, in fact, he was shot because he tried to leave South Africa. He was put into prison in Robin Island temporarily. And then of course, um, uh, he uh, realized that he had some connections. Uh, he was born in Rhodesia. And then at that time, Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, <laughs> um, uh, was a Br British colony. And uh, he managed to get a, a, a British passport and he was released from prison and he left. And then we reformed it in England. But as I said, 
This was in the 1960s when I was a student. So where you had leaders of Sanrock, they were all supporting virtually the ANC. And that's why that was that connection. But it was also important to have a separate sports organization, partly for the campaigns internationally and the campaigns for the International Olympic Committee. And the Olympic Committee was, I suppose, the biggest success at the time. Uh, when we worked with it and exposed the role of South Africa in the International Olympic Organization. And that's why at Baden-Baden, where they discussed the question of South Africa's membership, uh, I was representing Sandrock there and we managed to get South Africa suspended from the International Olympic Organization. And uh, they tried uh, many times with uh, countries that were sympathetic to South Africa to reinstitute South Africa. They succeeded partially and then were, the position was reversed again. So the sports boycott was extremely important also for South Africa because uh, white South Africa believe very strongly in sport and they're very keen on sport. So if you isolated them in sport, you were really hitting them very, very hard. And so we campaign abroad uh, for, for non-racial sport. And of course, within the anti-apartheid movement, uh, when I worked with it at the same time, we made the sports boycott, one of the important boycotts that we ran. That was Abdul Samad Minty. As we noted earlier in this episode, it was Minty who represented Sandrock at the International Olympic Committee meeting at Baden-Baden in Germany in 1963. The IOC has members from all National Olympic Associations and the international federations of all Olympic sports. At Baden-Baden, it adopted a proposal by the Indian representatives, which led to the exclusion of South Africa from the Tokyo Olympics in 1964. So I was there to represent and put the point of view of Sandrock. I remember all the details because one of the big questions was for us to produce evidence to show the racist nature of the apartheid structures. And we did that. Uh, I remember at that time, <clears throat> 1960, uh, we, uh, African countries were becoming independent. The question of South Africa came up and uh, Algeria as representatives there said that they would not join the International Olympic Committee if South Africa was still a member. So that was one of the successes we caught through our joint work with other African countries at Baden Baden. And that actually in the end, resulted in South Africa's suspension, moves like that, that most of Africa would, would leave the International Olympic Committee. <clears throat> so uh, my own uh, role was there to coordinate with the um, anti-apartheid organizations, with the African organizations, who they knew us, of course. And although I was representing Sandrock, they also knew that I worked with the anti-apartheid movement because I wrote letters to them on behalf of Sandrock and on behalf of the anti-apartheid movement over a couple of years before the event. Uh, when we went to the Olympic conference, uh, the head of the Olympic uh, committee at the time, the secretary general, tried to sideline us and not give us an opportunity to make representations. But I was able to get a letter uh, which was smuggled through uh, from Dennis Brutus. And I managed to give that to Mr. Brundage. Uh, he was staying in a very expensive hotel. And uh, when I went there uh, very early in the morning, I think it was six o'clock or so, and knocked at his door, 
then he opened the store. Maybe he thought someone was bringing breakfast or something. I don't know. Anyway, he opened the door and I said, gave him my name. He looked absolutely shocked. And I gave him the letter that had been sent by Dennis Protus, which we managed to get into our, our hands and told him that we were therefore asking him to remove South Africa from the International Olympic Committee. He, of course, refused, but we then got support during that week. We were lobbying there from many African and Asian countries who said that they would support us you know, against the racist efforts of the South African organizations. The South Africans also helped us a great deal, the white South Africans, because in the submissions that they put forward to the Olympic Committee, for example, they said that they would arrange in South Africa separate competitions for Africans and uh, for whites and so on. And then if they found that there were runners who had uh, exactly the same time uh, in, 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 this, in the race for the distance, although they ran separately, they would be able to identify from there the good runners. And after that, if they got somebody who, you know, black person and white who were equal, then they had developed methods by which they could really make uh, the best judgment about the physical capacity of the people. And they suggested that they had done that in the mines in South Africa, because when they recruited people for the mines, they used to uh, get them all in a line, the ones who, whose contracts were over. They would put a stethoscope on their chest, they would test them, and then they would decide after that who couldn't get another contract and who can't, depending on the condition of their lungs and their chest. Now, this was a very odd way to put forward to the international community how they would select the South African representatives because they would not allow uh, competition between blacks and whites. So then when that issue came up, they said, no, what we would do is you would have one uh, black person and one white person coming out of the competition for the blacks and the whites. And then we would select the South African team from there. And that of course made much uh, many of the people in the world think about the experience of Nazi Germany. And uh, you didn't have that kind of thing suggested in any other sports body. So it made it a little easier for us to work because we had to counter the documents that were being put forward by the uh, official racist bodies of South Africa. And where you had racism being applied as in the case of the South African sports bodies and South African organizations, this was unlike uh, all sport. Also, it was a violation of the Olympic Charter because the Olympic Charter said there shall be no discrimination <clears throat> based on race and so on. But this was being ignored throughout the years and the South Africans were members as a result of that. So when we showed that up and also the fact that I think for many countries, it became clear that if South Africa was allowed to remain, then many African countries would have to revise their position. And that I think was a serious blow to, to everybody. Algeria, which had just become independent, <clears throat> and I worked with them and other African delegations there, they were all keen to, be, to support us and to say that they will work with us. They also indicated to other colleagues in the Olympic movement, that if by the time they are independent and the African group as a group takes a position, and if South Africa is a member at that time, then they may consider not to join the Olympic movement at all. So that would have, of course, destroyed the Olympic movement. 
So that was our main uh, strategy and effort. But many initiatives were taken by African leaders. I mean, we gave them the information. They had confidence in us, so they, they supported us. I was invited to many meetings with the African group and the African representatives at Barton Barton and elsewhere. And we continued having links with them after that. So I corresponded with them for a number of years after that on the same issue of racism in sport. And I would say it comes to a head in 1968 at the Olympics in Mexico. That's the big one. You know, everybody talks about John Carlos and Tommy Smith when they put their fist up. Um, part of that's part of that also involved the isolation of South Africa, not allowing South Africa uh, to participate um, at the Olympics. And then after that is, I think, when the FIFA thing really picks up. So South Africa gets fully suspended. Both the Olympics, interestingly, and FIFA at that point are run by like two. One is run by an American, the IOC, right, by Avery Brunbridge and uh, the, the Olympics. And uh, football soccer is run by um, a British guy whose name now um, escapes me, you know, who everybody sort of, in hindsight, agrees was quite racist, so Stanley Roos. So they are sort of allies of South Africa. Interestingly, at this point, let me not jump ahead. I, I just want to quickly make this point. At that point, um, now the campaign kicks in to get South Africa kicked out of FIFA, which is also fascinating that the, that, that is the, the Olympics, but then crucially, it's really FIFA. That's the, 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 the big place where South Africa gets banned, despite the fact that soccer was not really that big with white people. It's, a, it's mostly, there's white people who play soccer in South Africa, mostly sort of working class whites, English speaking in around the big cities, Johannesburg, Durban, Cape Town. Um, but soccer is really a mass black sport. And it's, it's fascinating that that's the sport that really first gets to be banned um, uh, in South Africa. Um, but the quick, the, 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 the quick other uh, point I should make is that at that point, even in South Africa, you have uh, the black sports unions and by black, you know, then because there's the emergence of a political philosophy called black consciousness, which combines all the oppressed Indians, coloreds and Africans. That's when they form the sacos thing that I said at the outset. Then there are organizations uh, which you mentioned, which is uh, uh, probably more relevant and more important to uh, how the story um, unfolds. Um, and we use the uh, International Olympic Committee as uh, the example. By the late 1960s, it realizes that it cannot no longer uh, accept South Africa as a uh, member and it removes um, South Africa's uh, um, or make sure that South Africa does no longer receives uh, invitations to attend the uh, international uh, events and or the Olympic Games. And this and this situation is such that the boycott you have to understand in the 1970s and the uh, 1980s is basically watertight. There's 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 less than a thousand people getting, getting sports people getting in and out of um, South Africa each year, and that's just you know absolutely. Um, minuscule. So, you know, the boycott's almost 100% um, uh, watertight and the International Olympic Committee uh, acknowledges that and it says, well, you know, nothing, nothing's going to happen here until um, apartheid is um, abandoned. I must add here that the National Party, the ruling government in uh, South Africa, still continued to believe that it could tinker at the edges and adjust the um, tinker with the sports field and plead that sport was apolitical and should be separated from other political considerations and that South Africa should be allowed back onto the 
uh, sports field. But the rest of the world simply wasn't uh, buying that. Um, there are a few isolated exceptions, such as Margaret Thatcher in, uh, in the UK, but even her uh, lone voice couldn't, um, couldn't overcome, the re uh, overcome the political realities. Um, but this boycott was uh, watertight. So from the perspective of the International Olympic Committee, it was a case now that um, it would pass over monitoring and control of uh, the sports boycott to um, uh, a, a subset of the Olympic Committee. This was the Continental uh, Organization of Olympic Committees in Africa, ANOCA, the Association of uh, National Olympic Committees of uh, Africa. And uh, they essentially, Monten Anoka, through uh, Jean-Claude Gonga in particular, they uh, monitored the uh, sports boycott. And uh, they were the people who were in touch particularly with um, the exiled uh, South African sports people, particularly uh, Jean-Claude Gonga and Sam Ramsamy. They had uh, links through the um, Olympic Committee and the International Olympic Committee. And when uh, South Africa was readmitted to um, international sport and the uh, Olympic Games, then Sam Ramsamy actually goes on to become um, a member of the International um, Olympic Committee. So it was through this um, continental, African continental organization, ANOCA, that um, the, the, the politics and the monitoring of the boycott were uh, uh, played out within, within the um, Olympic Committee. And of course, other international federations had their own uh, structures. But you, you must remember that a lot of these international federations are, are particularly until recently, but before uh, sport became much more professional and much more uh, commercialized. These, a lot of these organizations were small. They had very, very few uh, resources. So it was only the big organizations like uh, the Olympics, uh, cricket and rugby that actually were really following the, uh, the sport uh, closely, perhaps boxing also. Um, but then again, the boxing organizations and international federations were also highly fractured. So um, the ability to actually monitor what was going on, it was really at a, it was, has to be said, it was primarily at a macro level. And the number of people who, the number of players was, um, was actually, uh, I think you'll find, uh, quite small. I mean, historians have yet to uh, visit and revisit that, but I think overall you'll find that the network was uh, uh, very, very small. And the key organisations were cricket, rugby, and uh, the Olympics. So 1974, South Africa got, got banned by FIFA. The other sports, cricket and rugby, which is the sport that white people cared about, that took much longer. With rugby, there's still tours going into South Africa. I think the last tour that happens is in 1976 when the, the All Blacks, which is the best team in the world at the time, they still went to South Africa. And you have to remember 1976, the year of the Soweto uprising. It's only by 1981 when South Africa goes on a tour to New Zealand and actually to the US at the end of it, but they go on a rugby tour to New Zealand when they are confronted for the first time, there's a concerted movement in New Zealand called HALT, H-A-L-T, which is, they're against the tour and they manage to disrupt the tour, like, you know, uh, throw smoke bombs on fields, run on fields, just kind of disrupting the rugby tour. And that leads to the, to the, to sort of the, the last tour by a South African rugby team outside South Africa. 
quick footnote, a lot of that stuff starts in the 1970, particularly in Britain, where people go to disrupt tours, like Peter Hain, that people often talk about, that's where they're, they start their campaigns. And people like Dennis Brutus in the early 70s, they also do things like run on the field, run on Wimbledon to disrupt a tennis game and make a point about apartheid in South Africa. But it's really by the end of the 1980s that South Africa, that, that rugby, finally has to face up to the fact that, 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 you know, that rugby is racist. The IRB, very conservative, the International Rugby Board, they sort of banned South Africa. In 1984, though, the British Lions, which is a combined team, right, of all the islands there, they still toured South Africa. I mean, people forget that, that a proper tour of the British Lions still went to South Africa in the 1980s. No, what happened was subsequent meeting, they tried to, the West, some of the Western countries tried to reinstate South Africa in various ways, and the material was distributed in advance. But we countered all that by saying that in effect, uh, none of that was, uh, was satisfactory. It was so racism. And since the world was aware of apartheid in 1960 because of sharp fall occurring as well, emotionally, it was very difficult for people to cross that bridge by these kind of arguments because nobody would believe them. The world was shocked by the Sharpeville massacre. And 1960 Sharpeville massacre took place at the same time as we were campaigning for the isolation of the apartheid regime. I came back in 1969. Uh, and uh, then when I returned, uh, I joined uh, uh, Sandrock, on a, uh, uh, of course, on a volunteer basis because I was a school teacher. And then, as I said, um, uh, the activities were increasing, but by which time South Africa was um, uh, not recognized, was de-recognized by the Olympic Committee of, uh, that's the International Olympic Committee in 1970. And I'll give you one little incident here um, that happened here. At that stage, I was teaching at a high school in South Africa, and, um, and, and this uh, meeting took place in Amsterdam in Holland where South Africa's uh, uh, status as an Olympic committee with the IOC was withdrawn. Uh, and uh, we heard the news, of course, there was no t television in South Africa at that stage, it was only radio. And then of course, all our black people celebrated and I, 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 I'm not someone to take a lot of alcohol, but everybody said, this is a celebration, let's enjoy it. And um, we enjoyed it. And of course, I, I, I developed a hangover and I went to school the next day. And by, I wouldn't say coincident, no doubt it was by design because everybody knew my status uh, as, a, as a sports administrator and as a, a sports coach in South Africa. Uh, a white inspector of schools turned up uh, with a um, white reporter. And uh, of course, he, they, they pretended they're coming to see what I'm doing, how I am teaching, etc. But the real intention was to find out, they wanted the black people to say they condemn what happened uh, in um, uh, Amsterdam, that South Africa has lost this recognition with the IUC. And of course, I had to be very careful because if I played it in an undiplomatic way, I would lose my job. <laughs> that would be the end of my, my salary structure. I was asked, what do you think? I said, well, you know, I heard about it. I didn't know much because I don't have uh, much uh, radio communication. And uh, I said, well, it is sad. Now I think something must be done. And I played it very coolly, very diplomatically. And of course, 
they wanted me to say I condemn this, which they never got that information and they quietly left. And of course, uh, as, as I indicated earlier, I left in early 1972 back to uh, uh, England. And I was very active, taking part in very many campaigns uh, in many parts of Europe. And I attended uh, uh, lectures um, uh, and, I, uh, and I also gave lectures. I gave lectures at the universities of many universities in uh, uh, England. Um, in fact, uh, I participated in debates uh, at the University of Cambridge and at the University of Oxford uh, on, on the issues of apartheid and what was happening. Uh, initially, uh, you know, we were a very small group of activists and we made sure that our activists had previously some form of a connection of sport in South Africa. And uh, Dennis Brutus, of course, we all knew, and sadly he left the country and that's when uh, uh, he proposed that I become the president. I said, look, here, you've been the president, we're going to leave you as president because it will be an honorary title anyway, because as if I'm the chairman, I will be in, in an executive position. And Dennis continued being the president. I became the executive chairman, as it were. But it was a small group of people uh, in, in this activity group. We didn't have more than uh, about eight or nine people. Another one very famous person in South Africa at that stage, who also left for England, uh, he was South Africa's top tennis player. And then he went to England uh, you know, by which time he got a bit old, he, he tried qualifying for Wimbledon, but he, he won many tournaments in England. Uh, he took part in uh, preliminary tournaments in Wimbledon and other areas. He couldn't make it. He and his brother joined us as members of Sandrock. It was a very small group of people, but largely committed in an activist way. Because at that stage, because um, um, when I was in South Africa, we, you know, we had to be careful. Uh, the word ANC became an anathema uh, to the white people. So we had to be careful. We couldn't use the word ANC. You use the word ANC, next moment you're in prison. Um, so uh, another movement was formed later called the Mass Democratic Movement, MDM. And that largely represented the ANC forces and uh, many of the top um, present, top uh, uh, politicians and uh, uh, ministers uh, in the ANC government are from that original movement. Of course, like, uh, uh, you know, I was in exile, Tabo Mbeki was a president, was in exile, and the others were in exile. Uh, for instance, Cyril Ramaphosa, the present president, and very many other people there were from the mass democratic movement. They engineered it to ensure that the opposition continued. But coming back to Sandrock, um, so the open contact only developed uh, after I left uh, uh, South Africa. Firstly, in 1966, when uh, I was there as a student and taught for a short while to earn some money. And then when I got back to England in 1972, um, I made contact with, of course, you know, the ANC knew what I was doing. So the relationship was of umbilical cord type of relationship. So the relationship was very, very good there. And the, the structure, as I said, was very, very small within uh, Sandrock uh, because all were volunteers, all had um, uh, occupations uh, to look after themselves and their families. And uh, luckily at that stage, I was single. 
but got married afterwards. I studied in uh, what was the former East Germany called 1973. I went to study there, I went to study sports coaching. Um, and I spent a year there in Leipzig. And that's where I met my wife. And uh, it wasn't easy to get out of the country. Uh, as at that time, the, the East Germans were very strict on who could leave the country. But eventually, um, she left the country uh, in uh, 1977. Uh, and uh, she joined me in England thereafter. At that stage, we had no office. Chris Bolio, uh, who became the secretary, as I said, we were a small group. He, he became the secretary. He previously, uh, he represented South Africa as a white, he's white South African, and he represented South Africa in weightlifting. And he also realized what was happening. And when he left the country again, for very same reason that others have left or in, into exile, uh, he, he, had, he opened a little hotel and we used the, the basement office, his office as a, I wouldn't call it headquarters, a place where we, to, where we met. And then afterwards, when I uh, took over, of course, he, and uh, he was also uh, selling the office and, and leaving to go and uh, live in Mauritius because his wife had died and uh, he wanted to, to leave uh, the UK. And uh, then initially, um, I had my offices uh, at home. I lived uh, in, in Northeast uh, London. And thereafter, uh, I, I moved the offices uh, to uh, um, Northwest uh, London. And, and that offices remained uh, until uh, I returned to South Africa. And of course, you know, when we returned to South Africa, things have changed. But we didn't have a, a big operation. In fact, you know, South Africans came there and because of the publicity that we generated uh, out of uh, uh, England and out of Europe, everybody thought we had a, a, a massive big organization with hundreds of members with massive big offices. When they came uh, uh, to see my office, they were surprised that I was on, on the fourth floor of a building with no lift and we had there to make the uh, wind the way in, and I had a, a small uh, operation room for myself and another room, uh, you know, where we could do our secretarial work. And they were surprised that uh, that uh, you know uh, people with this type of an energy could create so much uh, of uh, publicity, anti-apartheid publicity, specifically in relation to sport in South Africa. That was Sam Ramasamy giving us a peek into how he and his colleagues went about constructing brick by brick an international boycott against apartheid South African sport. Sandrock, the South African non-racial Olympic committee, of which Ramasamy became the chairman in 1974, had to get a seat at the table at all the international sporting bodies. For that, Ramasamy and others were helped in no small measure by the geopolitical situation at that time. On the one hand, many former colonies, especially in Africa, had recently become independent nations, and secondly, the Cold War was approaching its peak. Firstly, because of this multilateral link, because South Africa can't play sport on its own, you know, it had to be part of an international arena, while in trade and uh, diplomacy and other issues, they could do it on a one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one basis, you can't do it in sport. And there, and we also had 
in the East European bloc of countries, of course, they had a, 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 a political agenda. The political agenda was against apartheid South Africa, but we benefited as a result of that because we were part of that group that benefited because to a large extent, all the East European countries um, would boycott South Africa in international sport. So that provided a strength for us. But the biggest strength came from Africa because at that stage, Africa had some very, very good top athletes in the world. And of course, if they didn't take part in the Olympic Games and South Africa said, I beg your pardon, if Africa said, if South Africa participates, we won't take part in, uh, uh, in that particular uh, event. So as a result, for instance, in 1968, uh, together with what happened uh, with the, the, the American human rights issues, um, you know, which led uh, to um, uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos and the others uh, uh, being suspended, uh, the issue there was also South Africa. And the, uh, and the Mexican government said, no, we will not allow South Africa to come take, take part in the Olympic Games because the African countries, all African countries said, if South Africa competes there, we are going to withdraw. So as a result of that, they didn't take, South Africa was excluded. So as the anti-apartheid movement, we had developed links with them on sport and uh, made representations to them. They, of course, those were sympathetic, then asked us for more factual information. Because remember that most African nation countries did not have diplomatic representation in South Africa, so they wouldn't have uh, a diplomatic uh, uh, source of information. So they would ask us for that, and we would give them that. And if they had, they then had developed confidence in us. So they took uh, forward whatever we suggested as a policy that they themselves would also support. And that is how we got large amount of support from Asia and Africa. And also at that time, the socialist countries, which is communist countries were described as such. But uh, I think our main uh, effort was directed at Africa. And as African countries were becoming independent, they were proposing a big threat to the international bodies if they didn't uh, introduce some measures to try and eliminate South Africa. Sandrock was an, uh, an activist group, an anti-apartheid activist group, like the ANC, of course, the ANC had more status than us. We had no status as such, but we worked with sports organizations and anti-apartheid groups, anti-apartheid groups all over Europe, all over, uh, Americas, largely North America, that's uh, USA and Canada, uh, and, must, uh, and, and in some parts of Asia, uh, and spe especially in India, where we had a lot of support uh, from sports people and sports organizations. So they recognized us. In fact, at that stage, the controlling body for sport in Africa was called the Supreme Council for Sport in Africa. It was Supreme Council for Sport in Africa. Uh, and uh, they recognized us as the sporting wing of South Africa, and they gave us lots and lots of status, but we had no direct affiliation. We had no affiliation to international organization because we were an activist group, uh, because um, as activist group, we could not uh, take part in events. But what uh, the Africans did, they were very, very good to us. They took us with them to meetings. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and we used to, whenever it came to the issue of discussing race, discrimination and sport, we used to provide them with information. For instance, 
in 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 football, uh, the African Football Confederation called CAF, Confederation of African Football. They they took us as their representative. You know, they had little offices to prepare the documentation on how to get rid of South Africa. For instance, um, in uh, in 1976, I prepared all the documentation when South Africa was expelled. That South African football was expelled from FIFA. Uh, in fact, that happened at the Congress uh, in Montreal in 1976 during the Olympic Games. And at the same place, uh, South Africa was uh, suspended from international athletics, expelled from swimming, uh, and all other activities. So we prepared the documentation, and 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 the the, the Africans used to take us as their delegates. They're, they're, for instance, some had just one delegate. So we will, one of us will become the second delegate uh, for that country. And, we, and as a result of that, we had access to the international forum in a, in, a, in a different way, not directly, although it was indirect, but we had a lot of influence because we managed to provide the, the African delegates with the appropriate information. And that continued until, um, again, um, as, uh, uh, the IOC, created a, an anti-apartheid group also uh, under then President Samaranj uh, because he realized that one day the, the, our group Sandrock is going to become very important. And in fact, I be, the IOC created an anti-apartheid commission uh, uh, and um, as on sport. And uh, I was incorporated as a member of, of an organization which previously in the past you know, uh, they thought that members of Sandrock uh, were uh, communist agitators and they did not uh, have any political uh, sport, sporting issues to discuss, only political issues. And that was largely at that stage, you know, during the Cold War years, um, when um, largely the, the, the East European countries supported us. And they, because of East, East European countries' support for us, they thought we were political ag agitators, but they forgot the essence that we were fighting against, as I pointed out in my book, Apartheid, the Real Hurdle. And of course, we had a lot of support from India. Uh, and um, uh, in fact, uh, at one stage, uh, India, although it uh, 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 represented uh, people of Indian origin in South Africa in very many ways, uh, the anti-apartheid movement, the Indian anti-apartheid movement was formed there. And then a very prominent uh, uh, member of the, 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 the Indian Congress Party, uh, Anand Sharma, uh, he became his chair. And in fact, I think you probably know Anand Sharma afterwards uh, was a minister in the Indian government uh, of commerce and other activities. And uh, I think he's now retired. I don't know. In fact, I lost contact with him now. So he also helped us a lot. Uh, in fact, uh, at one of the meetings, he introduced me to the late Rajiv Khan Gandhi for me to explain to Rajiv Gandhi the, the issues specifically in relation to sport. It was very, very good. We had this type of activity going along. In 1976, 13 years after the International Olympic Committee had banned South Africa, New Zealand's rugby team known as the All Blacks toured South Africa. This was the same year as the Soweto uprising in the township of Soweto in Johannesburg. Students from numerous Sovietan schools began to protest in the streets in response to the introduction of Afrikaans 
as the medium of instruction in local schools. They were met with fierce police brutality and many were shot and killed. The African response to the All Blacks tour was to demand that the International Olympic Committee exclude New Zealand from the Olympic Games in Montreal in the same year. After the IOC refused, 25 African nations protested against this by boycotting the Games. This was the clearest illustration of African solidarity in enforcing the sporting boycott. And uh, at that time, South, Afri uh, South Africa and New Zealand were the major, within that, within that rugby component, the major players in international sport as far as rugby was concerned. And there was a uh, South, uh, and the African country said, look, we don't want New Zealand to take part in the uh, uh, tour to South Africa, but nevertheless, the, the, the right-wing uh, New Zealand government supported the New Zealand rugby uh, grouping. The officials were largely of, a, uh, of, of, if I might use the word, reactionary group of people. And they, they said, no, we are going to take part. We are going to take part in South Africa and we're going on a tour. And at that stage, there was this huge uh, campaign in South Africa against um, um, a, a, a boycott against uh, uh, the imposition of Afrikaans uh, in schools. And there was a boycott that led to uh, uh, the uh, uh, ceremonies that took place in South Africa at that stage, very well known throughout the world uh, about, the, about, the, about the massacres that took place in 1976. And uh, ne nevertheless, uh, the New Zealand rugby tour took, went ahead. And the, uh, the, the AU then was called the OAU, the Organization of African Unity. And um, they got information from anti-apartheid groups, from African sports leaders. And they said, look, they tried everything possible to persuade the uh, New Zealanders not to go there. Of that dislike or this, um you know, a contempt for South Africa really spills over in the big um, international uh, sporting tours. So you've got the, when South African cricket and rugby teams go abroad, there are mass uh, protests. So cricket and rugby games are played behind uh, barbed wire. Uh, there are mass protests. And those protests, yes, of course, there are a lot of uh, South African exiles involved in that. But it was also um, the ability of the issue to appeal to um let's say just ordinary people in Australia, in India, in, um, in uh, New Zealand, um, you know, who really opposed the, uh, what, what was going on in, uh, in, in South Africa and saw apartheid as a uh, moral issue. So there was that sort of uh, mobilisation. In New Zealand, the sports administration was very much held uh, by, um, by older white males in New Zealand, and they were extremely reluctant to, 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 to change. So they represented the most conservative elements within our community. And they um, dragged their feet at and, and simply refused to face up to the racism which they were supporting through continuing their links with South Africa. So um, yeah, I guess it, was, it wasn't until we had a, um, like a generational change within the New Zealand Rugby Union that we actually got this issue finally to be looked at by the sporting organisations as the serious issue it was. That was the voice of John Minto. He's a New Zealand-based political activist known for his involvement in various causes, most notably Halt All Racist Tours or HART, which was formed to protest against rugby tours 
to and from apartheid South Africa. In 1980, Minto became its national chairman. Well, uh, it started in, in Auckland in 1969, and it was started as an organization to stop the, the All Blacks going to South Africa in 1970. Now, I didn't join Heart until 1975, so I wasn't there at the, at the outset, but as a young activist, I joined in, in the mid-1970s. But it was started, um, as I say, by, uh, by, uh, by a group of um, uh, students and, and community leaders in Auckland, and it rapidly developed a, um, you know, a national profile. And because it was focused on rugby, which was the national sport of New Zealand, and the most important rugby links New Zealand had were with South Africa, so the, the organization was targeting um, a um, really uh, a major sort of um, uh, cultural sort of icon within New Zealand. And so it was hugely controversial. And therefore, through that controversy, through that debate, we had a very intense public interaction that went on for um, you know, 15 years. Um, but eventually produced some really good results, particularly in, in the 1981 uh, Springbok tour to, to New Zealand, which was um, where there were mass demonstrations. And there was a, I think, something which, which Black South Africans took as an inspiration and white South Africans realised we can't go on. But it came to a head in 1976 for, for New Zealand because 1976, the All Blacks went to South Africa with a with a a rugby team, and they toured South Africa at the same time that that black school children in South Africa were being murdered on the streets by the South African authorities. So from June 2016 till the end of the year, 600 black school children were murdered on the streets by um, you know by the by the by the by the police and the army, and. Uh, at the same time that was happening, you know, the tear gas was was right through South Africa um, as a response to these protests by, by young black people. We had the All Blacks entertaining white South Africa by playing rugby in the stadium. So there was a New Zealand, there was a huge backlash against New Zealand internationally because of that. And when New Zealand went to the Olympics in 1976 in Montreal, there was an attempt to get New Zealand excluded from the Olympic Games because we were um, engaging with South Africa in sport at a, at a time when, um, when, when the black struggle for, for freedom was, was reaching a real crescendo. Uh, in other words, we were, I, we were seen as being on the wrong side, uh, which, we, which we were. Um, so there was a move to do that. And when that failed, um, the... Uh, there were 29 African and Caribbean countries who walked out of the Olympics in protest against New Zealand. So, um, and the ramifications of that um, developed later with the Glen Eagles Agreement, um, where the Commonwealth head said that look, we, we will commit ourselves to, to stopping all sporting links between South Africa and, and our countries. And it, um, so that, that was, I guess, gave an impetus to to strengthen and tighten the international boycott, make it more difficult for South Africa and make it, um, you know, eventually bring the kinds of pressure which meant the end of apartheid came in the, in the late 1980s and, of course, the first election in 1994.
it was extremely difficult to try and engage with the sports administrators, either with the New Zealand Rugby Union or, in fact, any of our sporting bodies, including our, our, our Olympic Committee. Um, they, were, they were very tightly controlled by, uh, by very conservative European male leaders, uh, elderly in most cases, and so they were very much died in the wool and we would never receive um, any response to letters we would write. Uh, if you did get a response, it was very curt and negative. Um, so we had to organize outside that and we said, well, what we've got to do is we've got to generate a public debate. So we've got to take public protest action at their events um, so that we can engage, not them, but engage the general public in understanding what was going on. So in a sense, we, we worked around those people. We didn't try and convince the New Zealand Rugby Union leadership or the New Zealand Sporting Bodies leadership. We simply went to the public and said, this is an outrage. New Zealand needs to mobilise against it. And because, again, it was sport, New Zealanders are passionate about sport and rugby was at the focus of it, we were able to generate a very intense public debate, um, and it was um, and it was very very polarised. But in fact, polarised positions help to bring change more quickly than if we try and go softly. Softly, we went very hard out. We were we were provocative. We were we organised protests and and demonstrations. We were loud. We were we were rude. We were in people's faces, but that generated this debate. That would go on in the, in the in the in the pubs in the in the in the workrooms uh, in the in the sporting organisations around the country, and eventually that shifted public opinion quite dramatically in the right direction, and we had big changes uh, in New Zealand in the early 1980s. The very technical argument that John Minto and his colleagues at Heart had to overcome was that the All Blacks tour of South Africa was arranged by the New Zealand Rugby Union which was an autonomous body that had nothing to do with the New Zealand government. A similar argument was being made in relation to individual athletes who were visiting South Africa. Bruce Kidd was a Canadian long-distance runner who won medals at the 1962 Commonwealth Games and represented his country at the 1964 Olympics. He would later campaign to fortify the international sporting boycott. One was that uh, sporting exchanges with South Africa uh, particularly when they were subsidized by the South African government, gave them, uh, gave them uh, what they thought were rewarding opportunities. Um, during the Canadian winter, you could go to South Africa for hot weather training in beautiful facilities, uh, all expenses paid, uh, good competition. So uh, tough, tough competition, which, which is a way of gaining experience. So that would be one, it was a benefit to go. Um, secondly, I guess the, the, uh, the whole ideology of the government has no place in sports was very, very strong. And I think thirdly, um, there, there's part of the ideology of sport is that you is 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 you say yes, not no. You know, you 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 reach out and you play with with people in different communities, and so the boycott ran headlong into the 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 ideal of 
of, of international exchange that was so much a part of, of 20th century sport. Uh, you know, the instinct is to play with people unlike you and regard that as a learning opportunity. And it's deeply embedded in the Olympic ideal too. So the idea of saying no uh, was very hard for people to take. And, and I would say that most Canadian athletes also came out of uh, petty bourgeois uh, class background. Uh, you know, largely white, largely small communities. Um, so they, you know, Africa was a long way away, couldn't, couldn't identify. And Canadian athletes who went there, I mean, you know, they'd stay in these beautiful clubs. And uh, I mean, I remember talking to one one really, really important athlete who was, she was a swimmer, but she was sort of, she and I knew each other because we were both celebrated athletes. And she said, I didn't see any, I, I don't know what people are upset about. I was there for six weeks and I saw very, very few black people. So like they didn't, I said, we're, <laughs> you know, so it was a kind of naivety as well. You were listening to Bruce Kidd on the Nagrik podcast. I'm Aju John, and on this podcast, we learn together to become better at participating in public life. On this episode, we have heard from Sam Ramsamy, who was the chairman of Sandrock, coordinating the campaign for the international sporting boycott of apartheid sport in South Africa. Abdul Samad Minti, who represented Sandrock at the International Olympic Committee meeting in 1963 and later became a diplomat in democratic South Africa. Doug Booth from the University of Otago, Sean Jacobs from the New School at New York, John Minto who led the Halt All Racist Tours campaign in New Zealand, and Bruce Kidd, the former Canadian athlete and anti-apartheid campaigner. In 1977, the heads of state of the Commonwealth nations met at Glen Eagles in Scotland and agreed, as part of their support for the international campaign against apartheid, to discourage contact and competition between athletes from their countries and athletes and sporting organizations, teams or individuals from South Africa. The agreement expressed their full support for the international campaign against apartheid and welcomed the efforts of the United Nations to reach universally accepted approaches to the question of sporting contacts within the framework of that campaign. Both New Zealand and Canada are members of the Commonwealth. Let's return to Bruce Kidd. You know, I was a privileged white uh, university uh, middle-class athlete and uh, strongly believed in my own independence and my own uh, right to, to intervene and say things publicly. Uh, I also uh, tended towards um, social democratic politics. I grew up in such a family and uh, taking positions of public advocacy on equity issues was something that was, uh, was familiar to me. And in Canada in the early 60s, uh, taking a position against apartheid was um, in step with the governments of the day and the uh, 
you know, the, the, the progressive social organizations. Uh, interestingly, uh, it was other athletes. Uh, and, and so part of my story, uh, it, I mean, in, in a way, it was not difficult because I didn't have to oppose government on that issue. And in fact, I successfully appealed to government in the 1970s to, uh, to systematically stop sporting exchanges between Canadian and white South African athletes. And I did that against the views of most, most if not, or certainly many of my fellow athletes and, and the leaders of almost all the national sports bodies. And in fact, part of my story as an activist is in the early 70s, believing in a, a kind of a sport democracy, uh, I set about to persuade the, the, the memberships, athletes, coaches, officials of, of the various Olympic sports bodies starting with track and field, my own and swimming. I tried to persuade them to voluntarily embrace the, the international moratorium, the boycott of white South Africa. And uh, I got nowhere and I got nowhere. And uh, then uh, out of a kind of frustration and desperation, I began to push the federal government, which uh, had its own which was very conflicted on South Africa, but which took it, rhetorically, uh, it spoke out against apartheid, but in practice, it maintained trade and encouraged trade with South Africa. It encouraged, it gave the visas that it provided to South Africans were, you know, made no critical, et cetera, et cetera. But I found that because sport was an easy thing to do, I could get them to, uh, to crack down on the sports bodies uh, and say, if you wanna continue getting government funding, public funding, you've gotta end your sporting relationship with, us, with South Africa. And so I found that was a very, that, that was quickly successful, but I did that against the wishes of virtually all the leaders and many of the athletes, uh, some of whom were dear friends of mine. So the early 70s, I can send you articles of these, of these debates where people would say government has no business in the sports of this nation. And I'm calling upon government to, to uh, threaten sports bodies who go to South Africa with the end of public funding. So that was a curious part of, of, I mean, I spoke out against government on other issues and uh, I harassed them endlessly for their double standard. And I harassed them endlessly over the loopholes that they allowed so that for many years, they allowed white professional athletes from South Africa in sports like golf and tennis to compete in Canada uh, under the, the, on the dubious argument that these weren't athletes, these were business people and they should have business visas. I, 
I mean, you could read the South African press any day and if Gary Player was competing uh, in golf in Canada, the United States, he was clearly identified with the apartheid regime and uh, rewarded for that. So I, I spent a lot of time lobbying government to close that loophole. Same for third party exchanges. But I did that um, directly with government because I got nowhere uh, with my own. I mean, in 1986, in 1986, if you recall, there was a massive uh, African Caribbean uh, Asian boycott of the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh. Well, you won't recall that because you probably weren't born then. But uh, and and I called upon Canadian athletes to join that boycott. And of course I got, and I got killed from athletes who were, who I coached, <laughs> they, they just went nuts. I mean, so, so uh, on the question of the autonomy of sport, I, I've, I've always had little sympathy with that uh, within the, uh, relations of lib a liberal democratic society. And I've always felt that government has had the right to shape sport, particularly sport which it funds in line with um, public policy. But that has not been a popular position within Canadian sport or internationally. By the eighties, I mean, the, the Moscow boycott really, really hurt Canadian sport because the Canadian government forced Canadian athletes to stay home. And, 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 and in the wake of that also cut funding for sport. And a lot of people missed the best Olympics of their lives and they lost opportunities. And so the, the anti-apartheid boycott was henceforth tarred with the very same brush. And we had to make a distinction. The, the Soviet boycott was motivated by a foreign policy consideration, Afghanistan, far beyond the ability of any sports people to do anything about. But the anti-apartheid boycott was motivated by terrible conditions in sport. The, the, the gross a violation of human rights of the majority of sports people in South Africa. And you mentioned SACOS at the beginning of this. We could point to the leaders of non-racial sport in South Africa, urging us to, to strengthen and extend the moratorium. So we were doing this in solidarity with the majority of sports persons in South Africa. And we could always say that with confidence. When we did that, the South African government beat up those people whom we quoted often. So it was a very delicate balance there. But we had no doubt that we were speaking for the majority of South African sports persons. It was about sport. It was not about a foreign war. Yeah, you know, those, those days there were no mobile telephones. So it was... <laughs> Uh, yeah, we had a different type of life. It was largely by what were called fax, fax messages, initially telex messages, then fax messages, and telephone calls. 
and I used to keep in touch with, with most of the countries. If I found that South Africa was, or individuals were taking part in certain events, I wrote to anti-apartheid groups there. I wrote to sports organizations there. I telephoned them. In fact, at time, even at, attended some of the meetings to explain. To a large extent, we were successful. Not totally successful, but to a large extent, we were successful. Again, for instance, in 1972, the, the Africans played a very important role and, and they made it very clear uh, to the International Olympic Committee um, that uh, uh, Rhodesia at that stage uh, was you know, declared what they call UDA, Unilateral Declaration of Independence, uh, and, and broke away from the United Kingdom. But the system of government was racist and they, had a, they, they sent a team to the 1972 Olympic Games and the African country said, look, if South Africa, if Rhodesia takes part, we are not taking part. And then in the end, the IUC had no option but to uh, uh, withdraw Rhodesia's entry into the um, uh, uh, Olympic game. It was very interesting because I was there. And at that stage, there were very serious other incidents in 1972. Uh, one would remember the, the attack by the terrorist group uh, that uh, um, uh, in, invaded the village, to, uh, the, the Israeli compound in the Olympic village. Uh, and um, uh, the IOC president then was, uh, you know, uh, an extremely right-wing uh, American called Avery Brundage. Uh, and uh, he made a statement, you know, we, go, we had two serious incidents here and um, nevertheless, we're still continuing with the game. And he pointed out about the terrorist attack. And secondly, he talked in very, derogatory terms, how Africans uh, uh, virtually indicating that uh, they held the, the IOC to ransom, that if Rhodesia participate, they will not participate. And of course, the African countries were very upset. And the African delegation at that state was made up of very strong people. Um, uh, the head of the delegation was Abraham Odia, who was the president of the African sports movement called the Supreme Council for Sport in Africa the Secretary General, Jean-Claude Ganga, uh, and uh, also part of the delegation was Henry Adifopi, who later became uh, the Foreign Minister uh, of um, Nigeria. And I'll give you one incident about, about him in a minute. Um, and then, um, uh, and uh, I, I, I went to see the African delegation, uh, explaining to South, South African issues to them. And they said, Sam, look, we are now going to see Avery Brundage. And I was dressed very respectable with the collar tied, et cetera. And they said, you come along with us. And then of course, they, they said, they, they, you know, we have to be careful what Avery Brundage might say. So we went there into Avery Brundage's offices and they introduced everybody. And then Avery Brundage asked, who's this young man? That was me coming since 1972. And then uh, Abraham Odia very diplomatically said, no, he's part of our secretarial team and he's coming here to help us. <laughs> and then for a few years afterwards, the, 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 uh, the British government um, uh, had a, there was a meeting of Commonwealth countries in Zambia, I remember. And uh, at that time, Henry Adifopi was the foreign minister of um, um, Nigeria, and he represented together with his president uh, uh, the heads of Commonwealth meeting in uh, uh, Zambia. 
Uh, and at that stage, there was a big movement within the, uh, the, the grouping of uh, Commonwealth countries that, the, the, that the, there should be no trade link with South Africa. And, and Margaret Thatcher, who was then the Prime Minister of Britain, said, no, I am, going to, I am not going to impose uh, sanctions. I am going to continue with having the links with South Africa. And, and of course, the, Niger, the Africans and the Caribbean countries were very upset. And the Nigerians said, well, we will take some form of, of action against Britain. And that time, uh, BP, which was called British Petroleum, was the, the head was the British company then, totally British company then. And then Niger, then Foreign Minister Henry Adifopi said, look, if that is the case uh, in Nigeria, we are going to nationalize the BP. We are going to take over BP assets. So, so these are very strong measures were taken like this. And the United States too, uh, you know, I, I remember uh, the, the present um, president of the United States, Joe Biden, in, in, uh, in the Senate, he, when he was just a young senator, um, he condemned what was uh, South Africa's uh, racial policy. So this, this, and this again was the result of uh, uh, campaigns by, by Canadian and American anti-apartheid groups. You know, uh, we took the lead and I was very careful all the time to say, I'm, I, I'm an ally, I, uh, I support the leadership of SANROC, the South African uh, Non-Racial Olympic Committee, and, uh, and, and the activists, you know, the ANC in Toronto, the ANC in, in Lusaka, the ANC underground in South Africa, we look to them for, we're supporting them. But we were linked to activists uh, in the United States, the UK, uh, continental Europe, New Zealand, Australia. And even in the days of snail mail, we corresponded regularly, regularly. We wrote each other, uh, we sent, sent each other newspaper clippings. We, um, you know, we shared the letters that we sent to governments. Uh, there was an extraordinary amount of international collaboration. I can say right from, certainly from the late 60s. And, and remember my first discussions about this were in athletes villages at the Commonwealth and the Olympic games. And even there, they were international discussions. So it was very much an international campaign, very much. We were part of, I mean, we saw ourselves as part of, of an international movement and, and we were, there were anti-apartheid groups all around the world and we were in regular contact with them and, and they were us. This is, um, this is uh, uh, pre-internet. So there was a lot of, it was, it was letters, it was occasional phone calls, it was telegrams, it was that kind of thing. But in South Africa, um, the early 1970s, SACOS was formed, the South African Council on Sport, and they were the, they were the reference body we used to determine what our what our you know strategic approach would 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 be with regard to the United Nations or um, uh, international sporting bodies or um, even in terms of public campaigning. So they were they were very important and um, yeah, absolute inspiration to us. So the South African Council on Sport and their sort of external wing, the South African Non-Racial Olympic Committee, SANROC who were based in London and um, 
they represented the you know the non-racial sports people within South Africa. Um, so that, they were the two groups that we worked very closely with and who were quite pivotal in developing this international boycott. Uh, so through sport, you were able to reach sport, the sporting public in the world because they were interested in whether South Africa was playing and whether we were boycotting them and so on. So that provided a whole educational base uh, from that side. Then, of course, within South Africa, we were also raising the hopes of the uh, disenfranchised people because they also knew that abroad there were campaigns going on to demand their freedom. And, and that in the sporting field for people to be able to compete. We, of course, managed to get uh, one South African who was abroad, uh, Basil de Oliveira, a cricketer. And he was uh, brought to Europe with the help of John Harlett, who was a world famous uh, British cricket commentator. And uh, when he came to England, he, he played uh, for Worcestershire. And then later, when he, he had very good performances in his uh, sporting activities, people suggested that we should uh, get his support. But I went to see him and said, you know, please don't join the anti-apartheid movement. Don't join us. You just carry on playing cricket and we will do our work. And this was a good division of labor because there were, people could not then suggest that he was becoming politicized and so on. All he was doing was playing cricket. And in the end, when uh, the British team, uh, the MCC, as they used to call it at that time, was going to South Africa, they, of course, had selected a, a racial team. In other words, there was no one in the British team who was of color. And we asked for a meeting with the uh, minister for sport uh, Mr. Howell, I think, and we I went with Jeremy Thorpe, uh, with uh, Bishop Reeves, former Bishop of Johannesburg, and myself to the British government offices, and we said that Oliveira had to be in the team, otherwise they shouldn't go at all. It just so happened that that day, one of the players who was selected to go to South Africa was injured, and so Basil Oliveira was selected for that team. As a result of that, and I'm sure our pressure also helped. And he also scored, I think, it's 158 runs in his uh, match before, where he saved England in an international competition. And so uh, when he was selected, the South African Prime Minister said, No, this is, uh, we will not allow this team to come. It is the team of Bishop Reeves and the team of the anti apartheid movement. And so, in that way, in many cases, the apartheid regime helped us, you know, by the way that they behaved on this issue. So that immediately put an end to that uh, particular sports tour. Of course, every year regularly there would be uh, meetings of the International Cricket Board and others, and we attended those where we could and lobbied the participants and we informed them about what was happening from our side. They didn't always have that information. Uh, so the South African government was not able to outwit us or in any way give better information than, than we had. It was, a, and, and over in London, for the most part, and there were, you know, and there were, there were members of Samrock. I know there were members in Samrock in Canada who were, you know, on, on the executive or party, they were, they had other jobs. Uh, there was a, a guy who taught English at Bishop's University, Cecil Abrams, who 
was very much part of the Canadian scene. And then, and then there were links with the anti-apartheid organizations in most of these countries, the larger anti-apartheid movement. So there was a tremendous, and you know, communication wasn't always perfect, but you'd be surprised in the pre-internet days of how effective uh, were the networks. Uh, if, if I did a demonstration uh, in front of a golf course where a South African was playing, I could call upon uh, five or six Toronto-based anti-apartheid organizations and they would, uh, you know, they would publicize the demo and, you know, several members would, would show up. Uh, and of course, they would notify me of some of their, their own. Um, they were strategically smart and organizationally smart. Uh, strategically in the sense that they, they held up international sport to the oft-proclaimed ideals so that they called international sport on the contradictions between the moral claims of sport and the abusive practices within uh, white South African uh, society. And so they made an argument that was not foreign to sport, but was mainstream to sport. So uh, that was, I mean, that, that was, the structure of sport aided that. And then with this networking, they were uh, really, really, really systematic. And, uh, you know, they, they, gra they gradually expanded the circle in the way I'm describing. And they, they, they focused on what I would say is the long march through the organizations. So they, you know, systematically identified, targeted the international federations uh, that, that they wanted to exclude South Africa. And they systematically set out to get the votes in those organizations. And they, uh, you know, they, they linked in, they recruited, uh, you know, the NOCs and the leaders of those, um, those, those federations in Africa, the Caribbean, uh, and Asia. Uh, often, uh, and, and it was remarkable the way, the way they did this. Uh, they would often, they, uh, you know, if, if there was a meeting, uh, they would make sure that someone was there to, to, to voice emotion and, and work the room. And, uh, and uh, if uh, they couldn't be there, some NOC or some national sport federation would designate a member of Sandrock or a member of a sister organization to go uh, and they would, they would designate, they would credential somebody to go to that meeting 
and uh, and raise the flag and and perhaps uh, move a motion. I I do know that in the course of his his work, Sam Ram Sammy had credentials for 20, 25, 30 different organizations as people would credential, you know, there'd be a meeting in Europe, uh, you know, an African NOC can't always afford to go, all those complications. So they would say, Sam, if we give you a credential, will you go? And he would go. Uh, they'd make sure that they always had seconders. So they were really, really, really smart. And they used the United Nations well too. There was a special committee on, forgot the formal title, against apartheid at the UN. Uh, they actually employed Sam and Richard Lapchik for a number of years. And so that gave them, uh, you know, a New York base to work through state organizations. And remember, I'm just a, I'm a kind of distant member sitting up there in Canada, but I'm following this through the, through the correspondence and the clip, clippings. And when I did see people in meetings, I'm hearing all these stories and I saw it several times. You were listening to Bruce Kidd describe the thorough and smart operations of Sandrock. When I spoke to Sam Ramsamy, the man who was at the center of it all from the mid seventies, all the way up to 1990, I sensed that he was not one to talk about himself a lot preferring instead to talk about the cooperation and solidarity of the post-colonial nations. When I pressed him to speak about how a sports trainer managed to lead a campaign that spanned the entire world, this is what he had to say. Circumstances made it possible. It's made it possible for me to have this type of uh, an exchange. And I was, a, you know, as a student, I was quite a good researcher. And I made sure that the uh, documentation I presented, the arguments I put, I had researched it thoroughly. I used to, for instance, um, uh, study the uh, uh, South African parliamentary Hansard and get information there from uh, what happened in parliament and what parliamentarians said, what the government said, what the little bit of opposition that was there said. And, and, I, and I did quite a lot of research. So I, that helped to a large extent. But as I said, the, 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 the issue evolved. I was maturing. As I was going along, I was maturing uh, all the time. Um, and, and this helped a lot. And, and I was happy to meet heads of state, uh, heads of government in, in very many countries, you know, including um, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, heads of government there. I met um, um, uh, with the Jim Callahan and the others. And I met with uh, uh, Pierre Trudeau. Uh, I, I met very many um, uh, 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 premiers uh, uh, in uh, the uh, United States in, in various uh, 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 states uh, and it's been the Caribbean. Uh, we had very good links with Jamaica and, and the head of government at that stage was a, a, a strong anti-apartheid prime minister, Michael Manley. And uh, we had very, very good links in very many parts of the world. but. Again, the, you know, because I was representing a, a group it, uh, and I had good friends around me who had influence and that also helped. We, uh, we had influence to say, look, I am bringing someone here. I would like you to meet them. And, and that provided me with a, 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 
a, a, a, a forum for forum to explain to very many of these, uh, especially the heads of state, which I think they, they didn't, they, they understood the issue of apartheid, but the intricacies of sport didn't, um, uh, uh, I wouldn't say they, they weren't interested. The intricacies of sport got a bit complicated. So, and I had to also simplify what I was saying. I had to make sure that I didn't go into detail. I had to go on to the basic. I developed this this particular uh, attitude because as I was develop, uh, meeting people, then I realized, no, you know, this person doesn't understand fully the, the basis. So I have to st start on basics and it helped me like that. And then of course, eventually uh, when uh, yeah, after Mandela was released, I returned to South Africa and uh, I was uh, elected the first black president of the Olympic Committee of South Africa in 1992. And I continued as its president until 2004. The apartheid system in South Africa was ended through a series of negotiations that took place between the governing National Party, the African National Congress, and a wide variety of other political organizations between 1990 and 1993. With the end of apartheid, countries and sporting organizations rapidly ended their boycotts and South Africa was readmitted to the international sports federations. India, which had been a consistent supporter of the country's isolation, ended its boycott in 1991 by inviting the South African cricket team to the country for a series of one-day international cricket matches. In 1992, the Indian cricket team toured South Africa. In 1995, South Africa hosted and won the 1995 Rugby World Cup. At Ellis Park Stadium in Johannesburg, Watched from the stands by the new South African president, Nelson Mandela, the home team beat the All Blacks in the final. Now, in South Africa, I think, uh, the, first of all, the first impact was on white South Africans who believed that there was no place for non-whites, as they call us. So they are the first people who were, so, so, so to say, isolated and attacked by this campaign that was so successful. They didn't expect that we would be that successful because they thought that the support of some of the Western countries uh, would take them through and that they would be able to oppose any protests. So that uh, didn't work for, for, for the apartheid regime in South Africa and their supporters. But they also had supporters abroad who tried to trip us and give false information so that they would discredit us with that false information as if it came from us when it would not be true. So there were many tricks that were played by uh, the agents of apartheid, the regime there. But I think that in the end, we succeeded mainly because of our, our uh, general position. But one mustn't forget the worldwide impact of Sharpville. Because in 1960, when people were killed the way they were at Sharpville, that really shook the whole world. And it shook people in many Western countries who previously were not so concerned about South Africa. When they heard that happening, they took a position and then supported the anti-apartheid cause. We also had support from sportsmen. Uh, I mean, this, uh, I mentioned him, uh, John Hollett, the British uh, cricket commentator, was openly supporting us after he had been to South Africa after the 1960s. And uh, the fact that he had uh, sponsored and supported Basil Oliveira uh, also helped the cause. So the, the very eminent people associated themselves with our work. 
and they that gave us a wider breadth of support and also a wider base from which to work with that kind of support. The determining factor in the end was the, uh, the Cuban Angola army, which pushed back the South African Defense Force. I mean, uh, and uh, the, the economic boycott and all of the divestment campaigns, they really, really hurt South Africa. But the level, at the level of symbolism, uh, the cultural boycott and the sports boycott were very powerful. And the sports boycott uh, uh, put the international abhorrence of apartheid on the front page of South African newspapers and in the radio and television uh, broadcasts day after day after day. And so they, they both showed white South Africans that the rest of the world could not accept, rejected the, um, the, the, the apartheid and also, and also uh, gave encouragement to the oppressed black majority that people outside uh, were, were working uh, for them. And that was powerful. I mean, I, I, one of the, I mean, I haven't thought of this for a while, but because uh, it's, it, it's been over for 30 years, but, um, but in the 70s and 80s, um, uh, when I would answer people about this point, how can sport be meaningful? And, and I would say, well, can you imagine if nobody in the world would play hockey against Canadians? And if we snuck out of Canada to play a game in Berlin or some other place, people pelted us on the ice with rotten eggs and, and fruit, uh, and they would try to uh, gouge the ice so we couldn't play, and they protested against our hotels. Don't you think if that happened again and again and again, and that was reported on the front page of Canadian newspapers, we'd start to understand that the rest of the world hated us because of what we were doing to the majority of our own people. And that's what the sports boycott achieved within South Africa. I am convinced. I've, uh, you know, since um, the early 1980s, I've met with um, hundreds of people, hundreds of people have, have approached me to talk about how the protests from outside the, the rugby establishment caused um, a huge debate within these organizations. And it was a very positive debate in the sense that it, it shifted opinion um, in the right direction over, over quite a period of time. But, you know, it did take, it didn't take, you know, six months or a year. It, it took a couple of decades before we really had, um, we'd, we'd shifted past the tipping point and um, the rugby establishment, um, like in 1985, they reached a, a critical point where, where the High Court had on, acted on behalf of, of two representatives of a rugby team to, to bring an injunction to stop uh, an all-black tour to South Africa in 1985. And the, the court case was won, and the um, rugby union was told, you cannot send a rugby team to South Africa because you are in breach of your own constitution, which says you have to develop rugby 
Well, what this is doing is it is working against the development of rugby because of the huge public backlash within the country. And at that point, the New Zealand Rugby Union could have appealed it and gone ahead with the tour probably, but they, they simply threw their hands up and, and said, nah, that, that's the end of it. And that was the, that was a critical turning point. Um, so yeah, I can't emphasize enough the, there is, there is, you know, rational argument will get you one third of the way. It will only ever get you a third of the way towards justice. What you have to do is generate a, a debate where, where the public are forced to take a position um, and are forced to react emotionally to something. And if they're forced to react emotionally, often it's negative at first, but that works through and you, you end up shifting public opinion. That was John Minto and before him Bruce Kidd reflecting on the overall impact of the sporting boycott and the campaign against apartheid in sport. Let's now turn to Sean Jacobs. I, I would say a lot. I, I would even say probably, again, I, you know, I don't want to say more than, more than economic sanctions, but symbolically, I think it was really powerful. White South Africa was always obsessed with wanting to be part of the world, you know, just, just not feeling like they, that they are terrible people because they always used to claim that they meant well, you know, liberals, they always, they, they always meant well. They didn't want one person, one vote because maybe the natives aren't ready for it. You know, they, they meant well. It wasn't, when they made their rationalization, they didn't, they didn't understand what, what they was doing it was quite violent. Uh, it, you know, it was, it was, it was racist. It was always, it was always presented in a sort of paternalistic way. And I think being cut off from the rest of the world, particularly around sports, not being able to, to compete, you know, because they thought they were very good um, and, and being cut off from the world, I think it mattered to them. That isolation mattered. Um, and so I think the sport, the, 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 the anti-apartheid movement understood that, that this was about white South Africans being cut off from the world and wanting to feel uh, part of the world. I also think secondly, it was linked to also their notion of uh, their self, self-worth is not the word, like apartheid to Africana nationalism saw rugby as an extension of, the, of, of, of its identity, of, its, of the political identity of Africana nationalism. And so they were, they were good at rugby. Nobody disputes that South Africa has deep, you know, very good rugby, actually both white and the black rugby that was sort of neglected was also very good as we see now, Sia Kodisi coming from a long line of kind of black rugby, a lot of the great rugby from the Western Cape where I'm from. So, but Africana nationalism did identify, did connect rugby with white power. And so if you're not showing the world, you're supposed to show the world that the system, your system is working, that you're, that you, you know, that you're succeeding and now you can't show it. So it wasn't necessarily sometimes about changing for that, for the Africana nationalist politics, it was just about exhibiting their power. And so to not, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily like a change of heart. It was like, now we can show again that we can play. So I think there's a, the, the, the sports boycott understood the power of that, of what that meant. And you could see it, you could see it when apartheid ended, like how much that meant when they were allowed um, uh, back, back into international sport. Unfortunately, one of the sort of side effects of the sports boycott was 
in isolating all South African sports, right? Including black people, because you know, you couldn't, the whole country was banned. So black people couldn't also couldn't play table tennis, tennis cricket, whatever, internationally. It wasn't like uh, a black South African cricket team was still allowed to tour India or Pakistan or whatever. It was, it was nobody could go. But at the same time, within South Africa, white people still had resources, still had the best equipment, could still go as individual sports people. So you could go as Clive Rice or Graham Pollock or Barry Richard and go play in Australia regularly, Kepler Wessels, Wessels, play county cricket. But if you're a black South African, you could technically do that, but you didn't have the same kind of resources. Inside South Africa, it, the system was discriminating against you while whites are living like, the quality of life is like somebody living in the West. So they could still compete, but you can't compete. So when apartheid is over, they're ready. They, they are in a position for, so if, so when apartheid ends, if you see who's in the cricket team, it's gonna be the white, it's gonna be a mostly white cricket team. When you look at the rugby team, it's a mostly white rugby team. With time, I mean, we're now 25, 26 years into that process, things are changing. So if you now look at the South African rugby team, in 1995 when South Africa won the Rugby World Cup and Nelson Mandela was there with the cup and everything, they had one black player in that team. You know, so as, if you're South African, that team does not look like South Africa where nine out of 10 people are not white. So one of the unintended, I would say, consequences of like an all out boycott is that it led to the kind of system that we inherited. Secondly, the last comment on that is, I think it also resulted in, in the way that the sports work had unra un unraveled. So most black people played in that SACOS sport, you know, the sport I mentioned, the non-racial sport that I participated in as a kid. And in that sport, there was, uh, there was what they called no normal sport in an abnormal society. So many of those, many of those people, when it was over, uh, the, 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 by the end of apartheid, the ANC formed like another sporting body called the NSC, the National Sports Congress. And that's the body that negotiated the terms of what sports would look like after apartheid with white sports, not the SACOS people. So you, you had a very lopsided result that came out of that kind of, the ANC was negotiating the end of sports isolation and not sports people. And so you resulted in like a political solution in which you get the kind of sport codes that you have now. And one last thing is very shortly after the end of apartheid, and that's not, that's not, South Africans couldn't do anything about that, is sports was becoming professionalized. You know, that kind of weird sports that's the best people play, but they're still amateurs, that was ending in the 1990s. It just so happens that that's also the end of apartheid. And again, if you are, if you had the good training, the best resources, could travel, that meant you were white, you were ready for that. And if you were black and you were waiting for liberation, and that at some level liberation would take care of these inequalities within sport that you had been fighting about, it wasn't happening. That was Sean Jacobs, a professor at the New School in New York, who spoke to us about the period of atrophy that black sport in South Africa had gone through during the period of sporting boycott. Sam Ramsamy was one of the people tasked with leading the country's sport out from isolation. 
and and as a result, black sport to a large extent, with, with the odd exceptions uh, of individuals and in team sports, sometimes in cricket, other times in individuals largely emerged. And we had we had great difficulty, no doubt, in the beginning, uh, uh, because we realized because of the apartheid structure, because um, uh, opportunities were not presented to 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 black school boys and school girls, uh, and as they were developing. Uh, we had a long list of activities to go through. In the beginning, I was reluctant to say, let's go into international sport. Let's open up the links to international sport. But then I was advised by largely the ANC, especially um, Nelson Mandela and you know, senior members of, of uh, the ANC and the government. Said, Sam, you know, we understand where you're coming from, what you did and how you did. But now we need to look on a very broad basis, you know, we 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 can't say, you know, we're creating a, a, a access on a political front, and then say we we can't create access on a sporting front. It's going to be very difficult. And secondly, he says this is an ideal opportunity to show white South Africans that we were not against white South Africa. We were against the system, and we want them to understand this. And we provide this opportunity now for them to take part in international sport and help the, the, the black compatriots to develop. But unfortunately, uh, that hasn't happened up to now. In certain sport, you know, in certain sport, max sport like football, it's, it's totally integrated. But in many other sports, integration is very, very slow. And that again is because opportunities are not there. Uh, there is still uh, uh, in some areas what we call parallel development. One, one organization with black grouping, the other organization with white grouping, and there's no merger. And, 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 and my, my system is, yeah, even up to now, that we will only have uh, an opportunity for everybody to say what we are, like in other parts, like in the United States or in France, although there are forms of racial discrimination, but uh, in, in sport, to a large extent, it is hidden. But of course, uh, what's happening in Europe now, when we see people taking the knee, we started in the United States, um, uh, you know, it's not happening so much within the sporting family, but it's happening outside the family where there is this, this type of a, a racism that's emerging. But in South Africa, it's, it's still within parts of administration. Uh, and, uh, and my view has always been, and this is the view of many people within my uh, grouping, my, my peer group, is that, uh, you know, we must provide opportunities from an early age for all South Africans. Of course, because up to now, Black uh, kids have been deprived of opportunities, provide op equal opportunities to everybody. When equal opportunities are presented to everybody, then in the end, it does not matter whether the black person or the white person emerges to the top. And then I will say, you know, when all uh, elements of opportunities have been uh, again leveled, leveled as we've talked about in sport and leveling the, the ground, leveling uh, the, the playing field, if it's been leveled, and it's irrespective of who gets to the top, whether it's black or white. And if the team then turns up to be all black, all white, half black, half white, we would say that is a South African team. 
that unfortunately I, I want to see happening. That in fact, I play a minor role in sport now because I've retired from uh, 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 senior administration, but that is still my, my, uh, my ambition, uh, uh, what I would like to see. With that, we come to the end of this episode of the Nagrik Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please tell your friends, colleagues and family about us. My name is Aju John and you can write to me at aju at nagriklearning.com. On Twitter, we are at Nagrik Learning. Thanks to my guests, Sam Ramsamy, Abdul Samad Minty, John Minto, Bruce Kidd, Sean Jacobs and Douglas Booth. And thank you all for listening.